Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined on the line later today by Matt Hawk. Now, before we get into this week's show, I want to give you a quick recap of the week that was. Be honest, feeling pretty good right now, my friend. Feeling pretty darn good. Back in a rhythm. You know, I've been back from the San Francisco trip and the workshop for about two weeks now. Finally feel like I'm back on my routine. Everything's feeling good. You know, I had an awesome weekend with the kiddos this time around as I've alluded to a couple times. Kate is playing organized basketball really for the first time and while it is chaos <laughs> for an hour and a half every Saturday, it's fun to see the progression week to week because I mean, look, basketball is a hard game to understand. It's not like soccer where you just run around and you try and kick the ball in the net. It's like, you know, you have to play defense and what should you be doing on offense? If you have the ball, what do you do? If you don't have the ball, what do you do? So a lot going on, but just really excited to see him start to understand, have a better idea of what's going on. Got his first bucket, not actually in a game, but in practice, which may not sound like a big deal, but for him, you know, was kind of a big deal because they play with way too big of a ball for that size kid. Um, But yeah, very excited for him. And so I also owed him uh, just a day of hangout time. So after that, we went to Panera, which is basically his favorite place on earth to eat lunch, and then went to Dave & Buster's because this dude loves some arcade games. And so, yeah, we spent like two hours there. We were both zombies by the time we were done between all the noise and the lights and everything else. We were both ready to just go home and chill. So had an awesome day with him on Saturday and then Sunday, basically flip-flop. So Kendall spent Saturday with mom and grandma. And so I got her on Sunday. So we got to hang out. It was just a nasty day out, this like wintry mix. So Cade went and played with a friend and Kendall and I went and got hot chocolate and just sat at home and played about every board game imaginable. So really good weekend, just fun to kind of Just relax, kick back with them a little bit and enjoy some quality time. Really fun week ahead too. We have, or I'm going to a Butler basketball game with some of my friends from college on Wednesday. They're pretty darn good this year, although they've been on a a down streak here the last week or two. So hopefully I'm not jinxing them by showing up, but excited to watch them. We got the all-star break coming up. So we've got a lot of guys coming back to work with Joey and I and just really excited to get in the gym, see where these guys are at see how their bodies are feeling, just give them a good tune-up so that they can go back and, you know, if they're in the G League, go crush it for another month or so. If they're in the NBA, go back and, you know, have a really strong finish last 30 games, 30-plus games of the season. So uh, one last thing that I wanted to mention, you guys have heard me talk about Glenn, obviously, quite a bit. I mean, this dude just crushing it in Golden State, but the business of basketball isn't always the way you'd like for it to be, and You know, I think they loved him in Golden State, but they were a dumpster fire this year with, you know, Clay being injured, with Steph being injured. So to get under the luxury tax, pretty sure, you know, I don't have inside baseball here, but, you know, it makes sense. Hey, we want to get under the luxury tax. Let's trade some of our guys and uh, see where we're at. So Glenn is now with the 76ers. Really excited for him, though. I mean, look, they're a playoff team. They're probably the second best team in the East. And he went out in his first game, I mean, Played 12 minutes, but got 10 points. So pretty darn efficient, four or five from the field. So excited for him. Obviously, change of scenery is hard, especially getting traded in season. I'm sure it's hard for him. Um, But really excited to see him thrive and go out there and just have a great game, first game out. So 
that is where I am at right now. I could probably go on, but I figure I'm just going to shut it down there for today. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into this awesome, awesome new show with my guy, Matt Hawk. It seems like every day I talk to a young trainer or coach who is frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if that sounds anything like you, I've got something that I know will help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you, who are serious about the results they get and who know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is gonna take the last 20 years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In it, you'll learn how to use the R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. How to create the culture, environment, and relationships with everyone you train so you can get the absolute best results. And the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym, from squatting and deadlifting to pressing and pulling and everything in between. Of course, there's a ton more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the cert is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the certification will only open twice per year for a limited time only. If you're interested in learning more, my next cert will launch in March of 2020, and if you join my free insiders list, you'll be able to save $200 when it opens. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, completecoachcertification.com, and then stay tuned for emails in the coming weeks. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you'll pick up a copy of the Complete Coach Certification when it launches. Matt Hawk is the Sports Science Coordinator for the Portland Timbers of the MLS, supporting sports science initiatives for the Timbers, Thorns, Timbers 2, and the Portland Timbers Academy. He is also the Program Manager of Sports Performance for Providence Sports Medicine, serving athletes across the Pacific Northwest. As a former college football player himself, his athlete monitoring and assessment practices are performance-centered, with emphasis on improving athlete and team success outcomes. In this show, Matt and I talk about how being the first athlete of Mark McLaughlin helped springboard him into the world of physical preparation, what a sports scientist does on a day-to-day basis, why he's such a big fan of, quote, invisible monitoring, unquote, and we finish by taking a deep dive into the hot-button topic of load management and how it applies to soccer. I will tell you there's a bit of artifact for the first 8 to 10 minutes of the show, but don't let that deter you. This is an awesome episode, and I feel like I took a ton away from it, so I hope you will as well. But enough for me. Let's do this. Matt, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to have you on. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thank you for having me today. I am based here in Portland, Oregon. I'm the sports science coordinator for the Portland Timbers of the MLS, but also serving Thorns of the NWSL. And I also serve our second team of the Timbers as well as our academy in-house. So five teams in total there. And concurrently, I'm also the program manager of sports performance for Providence Sports Medicine, serving Oregon and Southwest Washington. Man. So you don't have much going on these days, right? <laughs> no, that's right. Nothing nothing at all. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, tell me, what originally led you to the world of physical preparation? How did you get started in all this? 
I would say that my journey into physical preparation is not unlike a lot of strength coaches and else like sports science practitioners, particularly in the United States, where I started out as an athlete, wanting to figure out how I can improve my performance. But specifically, I was a high school athlete that wanted to be a collegiate athlete. Okay. And like many people in this field, I had some great coaches and mentors who were there, showed me the way to positively encourage me and push me to help me develop as an athlete. But then there's some coaches that offered unique challenges and opportunities for growth that really challenged me. But at the end of the day, the coaches that were fostering my development like helped show me the light in that direction. And um, <laughs> there was a unique circumstance in, in like 15, 16 years ago now at the beginning of my career where there's an actual photo of the moment that I started my journey in this field where you know I was a senior in high school. I started actually very young working, training, and interning concurrently. I'll touch a little bit on that, but you know, I was running track, made state in the 100 meter, and I got to go run down at University of Oregon, beautiful Hayward Field, one of the best track and field facilities in the world. Yeah. Obviously, it's going on a big revamp now, but there's a picture of me. You know, My track coach at the time said, hey, if you want to run this time at state, you could win state. And I believed that, and I knew I could run that time. But he said, if you think you're going to run that, you have to follow my training plan to a T. You have to do everything I say. Otherwise, it's not happening. Hmm. All these other guys that ran those times, they did my program. I'm, you know, This is the way. This is the light. But I said, okay. And I suffered, you know, I did everything. I did every crunch and plank and 200 and 400 and 600, all these crazy workouts. And you know, I make state. And I remember running in state, great conditions. It was a great heat, great competition. I wasn't really nervous. I was hungry. I was excited because I was ready to go. And I finished and come across as at the old Hayward field. If you were run up there, you come across, you know, come across the finish line. You're coming up to the top of the curb and they spend that big scoreboard up there. And I see my name drop from, you know, I was up at first or second down to the bottom of the heat. And there's a picture of me from the state website that, you know, they take pictures of all the events of me just Right. <laughs> head, head down, walking off the top of the curb. But it was actually at that moment of like, okay, wait a minute, buddy. I did everything you told me to do and I didn't get faster. And it was literally at that moment, that's when I chose, like, I want to know what it takes. I believe I have what it takes. Right. Well, I, I want to go figure out what I need to do. And it was literally a moment that's captured in a snapshot that sometimes when I present at clinics, I start with that about, hey, my career started with failure, which a lot of, you know, a lot of people maybe can relate to that. Right. But what that did is my journey into physical preparation started heavily on the strength and conditioning side for, you know, those in the listening community that know Mark McLaughlin from Omega Wave. Oh, yeah. I've heard him talk about his very first athlete. That was me. Oh. <laughs> if you've also ever heard him talk about the first athlete he ever had that was testing so poorly in the Omega Wave that he broke the system. That is also me. <laughs> wow, I'm that's very awesome. proud to uh, be a part of the folklore of that. But that's an example of my journey in physical preparation. Not only was I an athlete, I eventually made it and was able to play college football, which I'm incredibly proud about. But I also started my strength and conditioning career while I was training, while I was learning about in school. I was interning. I was working. I was doing anything I could to to figure out the path forward, not just for myself, but then you know for my teammates that were training with me, for high school kids that were coming in at the time. So even in the infancy, my strength conditioning and physical preparation journey was centered in and around you know technology, that sports science idea. The sports science really wasn't even a widely used term at that point. Like we're talking about 2004, 2005, like that wasn't out to the masses like it is now. 
but we were using technology to assess readiness and recovery. We were using technology in the gym to ask the crazy question of like, gee, are the athletes actually improving when, when they train? You <laughs> right. Know, crazy to ask something like that. But that, that was the infancy of my journey into, uh, into the world of physical preparation. I love it, man. So talk to me about the career path. So like you said, you're hungry, you're out there, you're working, you're interning, you're going through school. Talk to me from that point to where you're at now, where you're working with a professional MLS club. Could you like fill in the, fill in that timeline for us a little bit? One of the things that, that I, I am proud of, but from the sense where I think that it's, it's, got me to be able to be effective at what I do is the fact that over these last 15 going on 16 years that I've worked across the field of physical preparation or of exercise and sports science, whatever you want to call it. Like you said, right now I work in professional sport. I've worked in the collegiate setting. Like I was mentioning, we, um, you know, some of the staff I work with now, we were working together down at Oregon state university. So I have that experience. But then in addition to that, I worked in a clinical setting alongside sports medicine practitioners, I think the years that I spent there have really helped inform me of not knowing what to do, but knowing what to listen for when I'm in my staff meetings, when I'm meeting people out about to better understand the scope of what it is they do and how it informs our athlete monitoring assessment protocol. So I worked in a private clinical setting, but like a lot of us in this field, you know, heck, I worked in a large corporate, not to be named personal training uh, <laughs> entity as well. Yeah. So I have that experience and I'm sure a lot of us can relate to that grind of trying to scrape together 20 to 30 hours of billable hours over a 50 or 60 hour work week that yeah. you're putting in. Uh, I've also, like I mentioned, interned and worked in the private sector. So pretty familiar with that setting. Once upon a time back at Performance Training Center, I uh, was some of the best and most fun years that I've had. But then in addition to that, I've worked in the academic sector as an instructor of exercise and sports science at Oregon State University as well. But then... I think one thing that's really helped, particularly in the last five to six years, is working in the private sector of like sports technology and software fields, which is, you know, as, as you probably know and your listeners know, it's like this crazy explosive field of there's a lot of ambiguity of what's going on. There's a lot of promises out there from some tech companies and some software companies, but it's been pivotal in my role now with the Timbers of being able to decipher not just how we're going to use things and correctly doing those things, but like what's worthwhile, like, or what's, you know, a little bit of a magic contraption, if you will, with, uh, with some limitations. So having worked across the spectrum, my career path, it is all of those individual areas that I've worked in, in my role right now, that each and every one of them come up on a daily or weekly basis that you know, benefit what I have to do on a day to day for the team. I love it. I love it. Okay, so let's start with the basics, because I know a lot of people listen to this show, a lot of people hear ESPN and all these sports media outlets now, and they talk about sports science. So if you don't mind, let's start with a basic question. What does a sports science coordinator do? Like, if you had to write a job description for yourself, what would that entail? You know, when I give presentations on, like, applied sports science in a team setting, this is one of the first things that we address in, like, the presentation of just what in the heck is sports science? Like we've been down this rabbit hole and to your exact point, we see it all over ESPN or the news or you read about in blogs online from the sport community, but have we really done a good job in the field of defining sports science? And this was a question that was raised over half a decade ago at a sports science clinic back when Dave Tenney would host the Seattle Sounders yeah. Sports Science Clinic once upon a time. I got to go to that when I had an opening during grad school, actually, I got to go to that. 
it was one of the best weekends of my life. Yeah. And in regards to this field, we asked that same question of, hey, you know, we've been having this conference. What the heck is sports science? Like, do we even have an operational definition? And it really challenged me because I just polished up my, my thesis on the application and implementation of integrated technologies in NCAA football. So basically, how do you use tech in a team setting? So I was really racking my brain around that. And if I'm thinking about the job description of a sports science coordinator, backing up to sports science in general, sports science for me is the discovery, interpretation, and communication of relevant, impactful health, performance, and sport data. So when you break that down even further, when you talk about discovery, the score, the, the, the core of discovery for me is athlete monitoring assessment of uh, clothes and recovery. That's where we start with it. So obviously you go to the rabbit hole as a sports science coordinator of, on a day-to-day basis. You are implementing the, the logistics of that, implementing the technology, taking care of the technology, taking care of the hardware, the software, making sure it's implemented you know, correctly, accurately, reliably. But then we go back to the operational definition of sports science, the discovery interpretation means that, great, we get all this data, we summarize all this data, we start to ask certain questions about data. For me, it's not just enough to have any old Jack or Jane Doe go in there and do that. When you're talking about interpretation of that data, it is by a field expert with content knowledge. So yeah, you need to have the sports science background, you need to have the research design and methods background, the statistical background, the exercise phys, biomechanical background, yes, but you need content knowledge of where it's applied. And this is where I think overall in sports science, we are very heavy on the science and light on the sport. And I'm not the only person that thinks that. I'm not the first person who's thought that either. And so when we're talking about discovery, communication, and then interpretation, you still need those same field experts with content knowledge to make it apply in the sport. And we need to think about how does it apply in the sport from just the physical and medical side. Like we're really good at that. There's a lot of research about the physical and medical side. But for a sports science coordinator specifically, you have to be able to communicate that, not just to the rest of the staff that you work with on the medical performance and nutrition side. You have to be able to go up to a head coach and tell them what's going on with the day, how the squad is doing, or how a specific individual is doing. You have to be able to do that to an athlete. In a professional setting, in my setting, you might need to do that bilingually. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> But then at the same time, you've got to make those things make sense to your like your tactical director, your head of scouting. You need to be able to walk into the GM and say, hey, this is what's going on. Or you need to be able to communicate it to people that you report to in medical and performance so that they can go and do that simple, easily, effectively to answer the questions about physical performance, uh, medical availability. Or on the sports side, definitely like the technical and tactical elements of the sport, whether it's soccer, football, basketball, hockey, whatever it might be. So for a sports science coordinator, like the job description means you're able to do all those things and actually relate it to the sport. Because yeah. I think that there's actually a lot of like performance science and health science, like we in strength and conditioning, physical preparation. I think overall, there's so much information out there about the physical performance side of it. And where I would challenge sports science and like, we'll probably you know talk about this in a little bit. One of the directions is like, we've got to emphasize the sport aspect of sports science. So for a sports science coordinator, Great, wonderful. You have this exercise science background, you know, research design, you know how to read research, you know how to understand statistical methods and what stats are saying and not saying. You can build applicable models for monitoring, assessing workloads and recovery trends, injury risk analysis. You can do all those things. But at the end of the day, the sports science coordinator or director, whoever it may be, they have to make it make sense in the content of the context of we're here to try and win games, buddy. Right. You know, <laughs> we can't forget about that. So, you know, writing 
the job description, which I've been involved with over the years <laughs> in different roles and trying to help define that is great. You have all these other backgrounds, skills, wonderful. Can you make it make sense in this environment? Like, can you make a difference in this environment by making yep. it make sense? I love it. And, you know, this wasn't originally planned in my questions, but you bring up such a great point. Like, how big of a role does just being a good communicator play being in your position? Because like you alluded to, on any given day, you could be talking to an American athlete, an international athlete, a coach, a director of scouting, a GM. And it, it goes beyond just like, I don't know, like being able to make sense of all this. It's like putting the things that they need to know into their words. So like the amount of knowledge that you need to have has to be pretty vast to be able to take what you're learning or what you're working on and make it make sense to all those different people. Am I correct? I totally agree. And may, you know, maybe you can empathize with me on this aspect. I know a lot of people listening can empathize about the conversation gearing towards, oh man, it's about building relationships. And over like the last year and a half, and I've thought this way in the past, but over the last year and a half, especially, it's not that I'm getting sick of hearing that, <laughs> but it's become this buzzword and cliche about, you know, the reason that your sports science initiatives don't work is because you just can't build relationships. It's about building relationships. Can you imagine if we like had that same mindset about like the dating world about like, you know why you can't ever get in a relationship or you've never been married because you can't build a relationship. But if you thought about it in that context, maybe there's something wrong with you. Right. Where you can't go and build a relationship. Right. But to your point, if you take that same content or that same concept in a team setting, yes, it's about building relationships. And part about building relationships is, yes, you need to know all these things. And yes, you need to have good communication skills and emotional awareness. But then it comes down, it boils down to you've got to be great at what you do on all fronts. Yeah. And I am very fortunate that the environment that I work in, the people I work with, the people I report to are outstanding at what they do. They care so deeply about our staff, the team process, and they're very good. Like I mentioned, they're very good. So yeah. building relationships in our setting means that you are showing a willingness and that you are showing what we are doing is important and that you care about it and that you're willing to sacrifice. And I think the success that our organization has had going back to like 2014, 2015, when the the core of the staff, like our head director, our head performance director, if you will, that's about the time that he came into the club and the coaches that have been here, you know, ongoing since then, all the players, the management, like the relationships that we've built, like, don't get me wrong, like we drive each other crazy sometimes, but at the end of the day, each and every one of us will put our arm around each other and, you know, raise an adult soda pop and, <laughs> and we like move on to bigger and better things. Yes, it's about building relationships, but man, there's something about building relationships that's not just as easy as, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this. It takes more than time. It takes more than effort. There has to be a special element in the air that maybe it's, it is luck where you can get along with people, but there's got to be something that clicks in you that inspires somebody else to want to connect. Absolutely. So it's a cliche and it drives me nuts, but at the same time, there is something to it. Absolutely. Positively. For sure. So let's dig in and I would love to just like explore and learn more about what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. So right now we're in December, the show dropped sometime towards the end of December. It's your off season, <laughs> at least for a little bit longer, right? So during the off season, what does your daily schedule look like? Like what are you doing right now when the athletes aren't necessarily in season practicing and playing games? There's different phases of the off season. Like as soon as the season ends, like we take time to digest because now we got exit medicals need to like take inventory of like 
particularly in my role, technology we have, shipments of stuff that's coming in. Are we replacing stuff? You know, what are we reordering? How does that impact the budget for next year? So like in the infancy of the off season, it's just like, let's tidy up all the loose ends from daily operations. The other side is we have done our exit medicals. We know the off season plan for everybody. And we know where everyone's going to be, where the international call-ups are going to call from. So we know what to expect for the guys, the team, yep. as they move forward in the offseason. As you move forward from that, it's like, okay, what are some outstanding projects that need to be buttoned up from this last season from like a sports science standpoint of let's do an injury report. You know, well, let's look at trends we saw throughout the season. Let's ask bigger questions for analysis models going into next season. So for me right now, and this is going to continue all the way up, like even through the start of preseason, the big project we have now is that as, a, as the coordinator now, we are each and every one of our clubs, each and every one of our teams, excuse me, within our club are going to be all plugged into the same athlete management software system. Oh, that's cool. So what that, what that also, there's, to my knowledge, there are very few organizations of any sport that have everyone plugged into one central hub to unite a central vision. So what that inherently means is like we are developing and implementing sports science athlete monitoring and assessment methodology for each team across the club. And though each team in each individual setting from a performance side, from a medical and a nutrition side, and from a coaching side, they all have their each individual needs. But at the same time, there are certain elements that are going to be a common way that particularly the medical and performance side will look at the health and wellness of an athlete and health and performance of an athlete. But then on the flip side, there will be some common elements that coaches and management and scouting can look at to better understand like who we are on the pitch and yeah. who we want to be on the pitch. So my big task this offseason is spending time with each separate en entity and staff. Like I mentioned to you, I'm headed down to the stadium after this to meet with some of our staff to help them get plugged in the system and understand the direction that we will be heading and the, these new resources and solutions that we have that aren't going to radically alter what they believe about who we are, but going to give them some really awesome context to understand, you know, why it is that we are who we are yeah. um, on the pitch and off the pitch. So it's a lot of time diving into our AMS platform. There's a lot of great AMS platforms out there. I think that there's a lot of great solutions that can meet a lot of people's needs. We have a great partner in Kitman Labs, who, and I, and I use that word specifically, we have a partnership with them where we understand we want to build something that matches an organization's needs. We yep. have specific needs and how we do things. But the big part of my off-season project is diving in further with them to get our analysis built out, to get our critical workflows of daily monitoring and assessment built out, to get our understanding of daily and weekly reporting built out, but then be able to implement that great. First team got it. Now the Thorns are going to have what they're going to use in that regard. Uh, the second team is going to get what they have in that regard. The academy is going to get what they have in that regard. And everyone's going to be plugged in. So it's a huge project. For sure. Uh, we, you know, saying it out loud is like, wow, that's crazy. I can't believe we're doing this. <laughs> right. But at the same time, like, there's a big vision for it. And that's it. what I can say about my offseason. It's at least a mostly Monday through Friday focus on that. So yes. Yes. When the, obviously, when the season kicks back up, it's you know, six seven, days, seven a days a week for yeah. yeah. For for a good chunk of your year, right? Holy smokes, you're telling me. Yeah. <laughs> so talk to me about how that shifts when you go from this off season, you've got you've done the tidying up and you've got, you know, two thousand nineteen wrapped up, you've got these initiatives in place, you know what you wanna kinda focus on or, or roll out in two thousand twenty. What shifts when you get into preseason? Like what do you start focusing on? 
what does that process look like? Because, you know, for most clubs, I feel like it's about six weeks, give or take. But, you know, how does your role shift when you go out of maintenance, tidy up mode into, okay, now we're back in the thick of things? Yeah, I'm thinking of like just the daily schedule of how it's so focused on what is happening that day with that group of players and what's coming up that week and coming weeks. I like, for example, a day in the life of myself walking into the building. Most of us get there like 6.30, 6.45, get the, the day set up. So get equipment set up, get the technology ready, the GPS, make sure everything's logistically good to go with all the equipment that we're doing. The first staff meeting we have with all medical and performance and nutrition staff is at 7.30. We meet every day and we know what's going on with every player, the group as a whole, the plan for the day and what's coming up. So over that half hour or so, sometimes a little bit longer depending on you know the phase of the time, we get everything etched out. Players start rolling in about 8.30, but we can start some guys coming in to get treatment about 8, coming in a little bit early. We shift some of the members of our staff will go upstairs and meet the technical staff to discuss, you know, here's where everything's going, what's the plan for today, you know, where are we at for the rest of the week, and just making sure that the plans that we have been making already, we're still on course of that, good. Everyone's on the same page to know what to expect. Players are eating. After that, there's some treatment time for them. There's gym time, but, you know, I'm doing Omega Wave assessments, we're talking wellness scores, and maybe there's some other assessments that we're doing for fatigue monitoring at that point depending on what time of the the year or cycle it is, players are in the gym. And yes, soccer players do lift weights, contrary to popular <laughs> belief out there. Our guys mostly lift twice a week, depending on match density, depending on where we're at in the programming. Our performance staff does an incredible job. You know, both Nick and Charles do an outstanding job with the first team there. Uh, there are individualized programs for every player on that team based on like the assessment monitoring that we do based on injury history, based on chronological age, based on training, like they do such a tremendous job of making sure they are dialed in. And I would I would argue with anyone to say that they aren't top in the league what they've been doing. I think our injury record speaks for itself in a, in a sport where it's like, it's a heavy travel sport. There are inherently a lot of injuries in what we do. Yep. The staff that has been developed over that long haul, we've had a very positive injury record overall. And that's very difficult to do on a consistent basis, if at all. So they're in the gym doing some stuff before work. There's a lot of targeted also like activation activities. So even if you're not doing a full lift, there's targeted activation activities based on different type of movement assessments, different type of like fatigue profiling from force plates. We use Sparta Science. They've been a tremendous partner as well. So based on the assessments that, that we perform there, we have a better understanding of different movement targets, different movement signatures to help prepare them when they go on the pitch to start warming up at about 10. They're already well on that process. They're not going out there cold, yeah. uh, if you will, you know, for lack of a better term. For sure. Training's, training's 10 to 11. I'm running around, you know, making sure from a GPS side, all the drills are getting spliced up correctly. Things are running smoothly based on whatever workloads we're looking for that day, whatever physical trait we're trying to utilize. And then practice gets done. It's a race to try and get all the logistics of the equipment back inside. Everything's loaded up. We have a lot of pre-built reporting systems in place, so we're not recreating the wheel every day. We're summarizing what happened with each player, the squad as a whole. We're kind of debriefing as a medical staff and as a performance staff to better understand what was going on, whether it's GPS or with the force spray technology or some of the other technology that we're using to just assess different movement or muscle profiles, whatever it might be, to get a treatment plan in place or a preparation plan in place for the next day, the rest of the week for that player. And then the afternoon is a lot of debriefing and then some staff meeting to make sure that we're on track for the rest of the week. There's different goals for each day. That's kind of just an average day, if you will. 
but it's you know when people say in team it's all hands on deck like it's definitely our staff treats it like that every day because we want to make sure that the guys go out there with the best opportunity possible to prepare to the best degree possible so that when match day comes around we're rocking and rolling i love that and one thing that i would love to to circle back and highlight because obviously i have not done this at the level of club that you have but even when we were were out there every day with the Indy 11. I don't think most people understand the amount of time and preparation that goes into running a well-organized practice. You know, like you said, you're there 6.30, 6.45. Practice starts at when? 10. 10, right? So that's close to three hours, three and a half hours of preparation and organization and setting things up so that you do run an efficient practice. And, you know, it, it is funny because your older athletes and your older players tend to understand that and they recognize that some of the young guys really just have no clue. You know, they're 22 years old, they're coming in and they don't realize all of the work that goes into setting that up. So, you know, just highlighting that. And and I don't think if you've never been in a professional setting, you don't understand the amount of organization and planning that goes into running every day. That doesn't happen one day a week. That's every day. So I just wanted to highlight that. But I also had a follow up question. Because I know some people kind of go back and forth about this idea of athlete monitoring and how much is too much and when is it invasive. So I'm just truly interested. Like, are you Omega waving guys every day? Or if not, how often or how frequently are you doing that? We are not doing it every day for the exact reason you're talking about. We have a preference. We have a great relationship with Omega Wave North America, particularly because we have some of their company reps are based in Portland. Mark McLaughlin is based in Portland. And obviously, like my relationship with him is always helpful if we have right. questions or you know want to talk shop. But we are doing it twice a week with most players, or we yeah. aim if we're only going to get it once a week. There's certain days that for we sure. aim for based on working backwards from a match or forwards to a match, and yeah. we we do like to set precedents on how they're responding two days after a game yeah. because that is basically a re-entry day for us. We want to make sure their trajectory for the week is very good. Yes, worst case scenario. But then after, like, for us, game day minus two, if logistically there are other things going on, we want to at least have that 48-hour window to see if there's other ways that we can help their system adapt or help their system go into a trajectory over the next 48 hours that will put them in a more optimal state for higher physical output levels yeah. or at least sustained, perceptually sustained output levels. And we can go down the rabbit hole in the theory of, like, should you do that? Should you not do that? We, that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> right. But to your point, like we try and make, there's an idea that has been out there in sports science for a while, the idea of invisible monitoring, of just trying to get as much out of minimal data collection and just ask robust collect questions about it. And we're absolutely employing that technique to try and minimize our like monitoring footprint. But yes, we're dealing with human beings. A double-edged sword is also these human beings are paid to do a task. Yes. And part of it needs to be their job. But then you're exactly right. It's like, at what point are they sick and tired of doing X, Y, and Z? Yep. And that's where the relationship thing comes in. Because there are times I know somebody was up on with a new baby or they have other social things going on. And the last thing they want to do is come and do an Omega Wave. For sure. The last thing they want to do is a hydration test. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, good or bad. But that is the reality of when you work with human beings. And Yes, from our side, we would like as much information as we can as possible. But there's a point where you get the fatigue from you know pricking your finger, if you will, to use the lactate example. People get sick and tired of it and it begins to impact the test. Like I can speak from my own personal experience years and years and years ago. 
in college playing football, using the Omega Wave often. There were periods of time where I was not performing well because of outside stressors and all these other things and not taking care of myself. And showing up for that Omega Wave became stress. Yes. Mark McLaughlin was way out in front of that and said, you know what, I'm going to stop testing the rest of this week. We got a training plan, we're going to alter it, but I'm doing more damage than good. And that was the first time I'd ever even thought about it like that. Right. That was, you know, years and years and years ago. So he at least had the foresight of, yes, I believe in the system a lot, but you know what? I believe in taking care of these guys first and foremost. Yep. So you back off it, you go away from it. So the same thing in our setting, like there's absolutely positively a line in the sand with, okay, this is the 15th thing that they have to do this week in regards to monitoring assessment. What can we get off of like low impact, low footprint stuff? So the idea of invisible monitoring, which, you know, has been pioneered for several years. Uh, and there's a lot of good you know, research that is coming up from that idea. There's some good practitioners out there that are, uh, I, like Jay Stellaney, I believe, who was at University of Oregon, has moved on to the Boston Celtics, I believe. There are some papers that he had published that you know talked about that idea, or there's some blogs that were related to research that he had where you know he was looking at standardized metrics from GPS and wellness and understanding the interplay between both of those so that they could glean more information without trying to get more information out of the athlete without you know, the poking and prodding, if you will, of the athlete. Yep. And conceptually, I think people have been doing that for a while, but you know, getting a voice out there like his that was doing it at a big institution like that, there's a lot to be said, a lot to be learned from that concept of like, try and do less, or try and do more, but with less. Yes. So I'm a big fan of that concept. I love it. And this obviously leads us to arguably the hottest topic of you know, the, the past three to six months, and that is load management. So again, I'm going to put you on the spot here and ask if you had to give us a definition of load management, what would that be? And maybe to, to kind of expound on that, what role does load management play in professional soccer? You know, I, uh, you know, joking around, I thought, if he asked me about that, should I go scorched earth and just like <laughs> go viral? Yes. I don't think that's the right thing to do. So for me, load management, the concept of load management is simply trying to proactively plan workloads. Now, but why? Two theories, the two main theories that you read about from practitioners who are actually doing it and not talking pundits who are texting about it or tweeting about it. People in general are trying, the theory is, well, you're trying to prevent some injury based on many factors, or you're trying to optimize performance over the long haul based on many factors. That's like a 50,000-foot view of load yeah. management, just trying to proactively plan workloads for those two reasons. Load management is not new. Load management, I mean, how many years and years and decades now we've talking, have we been talking about pitching rotation in baseball? Well, why don't starting pitchers like start every day? Why don't they pitch six or seven innings every day? Right. That's like an explicit example. Well, there's a very good reason that they don't. And their elbows will uh, <laughs> explode will probably. About it. <laughs> but you want to talk about, there's had to have been a learning process for that. Like we talked about like the history of this. There had to have been a learning process. I can give a personal story about our family story. My grandfather played semi-pro baseball way back. We believe it was either the 30s or the 40s. We're actually not 100% sure because he never talked about it. He's one of those stoic Midwestern mm -hmm. farmers that yes. I don't talk about me. I'm just... I'm here to you know be be a dad and a family man. All that. We found out though he played like uh, farm ball, got moved up through one of the systems. I don't know if he ended up in the Detroit Tiger system or the Philadelphia Athletics. Go do the history on that wow. system. Wow, we're not 100 percent sure where he ended up, but uh, the story is that he was found by the parent club, if you will, 
because, you know, he's playing in some farm league way out. He pitched a doubleheader. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Think about that. Yeah, that's crazy. He pitched a doubleheader. So, again, I don't, we're not 100% sure if it's 30s or 40s, but think about the timeline now of how long did it take for people to figure out, like, oh, maybe we shouldn't, maybe we have to think about how often we're using our pitchers. And then as pitchers become more and more money, there's probably someone who's done a whole book or article series on, like, the evolution of the pitching value and when pitch counting came into all these things. But load management has been in baseball for how long? Think about it. Load management is not new. Right. It's the same reason why, like, in football, famously, like, historically, game day minus ones, the walkthroughs are literally a walkthrough. Well, why not practice as hard as you can the day before a game or practice as hard as you Oh, because we need to rest and get ready for the game. So the concept of load management is not new. It's just now, in 2019, now in American sports, in a sport like basketball, it's getting national attention. Yes. So I think the, the case of Kawhi Leonard... Yep, for sure. It, 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 he's the he's one of the people, if probably the forefront, where people are saying, "Why is he resting in October and November? What the heck is he doing in October and November?" And so then we go, and this is where I promise you, I won't go scorched earth. But there's a lot of experts on the internet who don't work in team settings, who have never worked in team settings, who have an opinion on it, and that's fine. But the reality is, in a team setting, nobody outside of his particular organization knows what was going on. They don't know that maybe there was a very good reason that he was doing that. Yes. And also no one's talking about the injury history that this particular player has had either during his time in Toronto or prior to his time in Toronto when he very publicly was out for a while. Right. Now, I'm not, I'm not making any inference. I'm not saying like this is what was happening. I'm not diagnosing for anything sure. like that. But the fact of the matter is the craziness about load management, particularly with Kawhi, and it relates to our talk, nobody knows what the Clippers organization from the medical and performance staff, what they... They have an incredibly tough job of trying to manage incredible superstars. And there's nobody out there that knows the information that they know. There, there could very well be a clinical diagnosed specific reason of, hey, we have to do this. I feel bad for that staff, but maybe yes. like maybe they're super resilient about it because like <laughs> nobody knows what we're doing. Like it doesn't matter what they say in the right. public or on ESPN or whatever. But the fact of the matter is with load management, in that case, which is what's exploded it, you don't know what was going on with Kawhi. I don't care what you say or how much you're paid to say it on whatever network. You don't know what that guy is going through, what that staff's going through. And there could have been a, an exact reason, an exact diagnosable objective reason of, hey, we're going to stitch you right now. Now, having said that, what needs to be said about load management? Not every athlete is created equally. So people start to say, well, you know, MJ never rested. Or there's a great example. Latrell Sprewell played 42 minutes a night every game of the season, never rested. In all those LeBron James has, I think, publicly stated and I reserve the right to be incorrect about this, but I believe he has publicly stated that he does not practice or does not engage in the practice of load management. I could yes. be wrong, but I believe that he's no, actually... he said that. Today. He said that. So not everybody genetically is MJ or Latrell or LeBron. Right. I can tell you this. Now we're talking about the soccer. Is load management practice in soccer? Well, it has to be, yes. There are... So for example, load management in the MLS. What does that look like in soccer? Because it's not like basketball. It's not like baseball. It's not like American football. In soccer, you can play one match every seven days, or you can play five matches in 16 days all across the country and region. Yeah. When you have match density like that, the vast majority of guys would not perform well if they started and played all five games by the time they get to third, fourth, and fifth game For sure. in 14, 15, 16 days. And to anyone now, to the critics and the pundits out there saying, well, that's why if you just had good training, 
Mike, if you just had good training, they could be able to handle and tolerate all those things. You know what? I would like to say our training is pretty darn good. Our workloads are pretty well darn managed. <laughs> there are very few guys that even want to play five games in five days. And that's not a diss on the guys, but they know like they know how their bodies respond. Yeah. They know like I have 12 more games to play after this. We have a playoff push coming up. It is not in my best interest to do this. Absolutely. There are a few guys, though, who could absolutely positively play at a strong level for five games and barring anything super crazy could survive those five games and move into the next week. It would take a psychological and emotional toll on them. Yes, and it would take a physical toll. And I, you know, and, and these are things that we've looked at. How does the individual's peak amplitudes, how do those respond in the weeks after match density? Because I can tell you firsthand from looking at those things, there's a cost that is paid when in, in extreme circumstances, uh, when load management is not giving consideration to. Now, I'm not saying we did a bad thing or we made a mistake. We had to play. Like, we had to win those games. Right. And there's another double-edged sword when it comes to load management because we're in pro sport. Like, this is, there's a bottom line here. That, <laughs> sure, in college sports, bottom line matters. Obviously, there's, sure. that's a healthy conversation. But there's a double-edged sword of, number one, we have to, we want to enable performance for the long run. So one edge of that sort is we need to protect these guys because if there's an injury history, there are loading discrepancies, there are reporting soreness, or any of the other modifiable factors that we look at. If any of those things are coming up, we have to be smart in periods of density or periods where we need to work, where we have maybe four to six matches in a time frame. Then on the flip side of that, we're here to win games. We're here to finish as high as we can in standings. And from a conceptual standpoint, now I'm not just talking about the Portland Timbers, I'm talking about all of pro sports because this has been very public. If the general public knows, like, oh, LeBron or Kawhi is sitting out, like, why would I buy that ticket tonight? Or why would I tune into a nationally televised broadcast if I know someone's sitting out? There, We have to, like, carefully and respectfully have that conversation of that's where some people are coming at load management from, is that there's a financial side in pro sport. And again, I'm not speaking yeah. to, to our environment in the Portland Timbers, but just a general concept in all of pro sports is, there's the other edge of that sort too in pro sport. There's that business element. And yep. what I want to say about load management is that it is not one size fits all in regards to sport to sport. You can't treat a basketball player's load management with the exact same approach as a soccer player's because demands are different. The workload distribution is different. The frequency and density of the games over a course of six to eight to 10 months is different. And it's definitely different from American football where you got load management largely does not happen in American football in the game. Load management in American football happens from the other six days of the week of not running him into the ground. That's right. where, quote unquote, load management would happen. Yep. But you don't see guys like, oh, yeah, he's on a, we're going to limit his snaps and plays this quarter because of load management. What you'd say, you might see that in a rehab, like if a guy is just coming back to full speed, like sure. we're going to, yeah, we're going to, we're going to give him some game time. He's coming off an ACL and this is really, you know, we're, we'll get him some stats probably end of the first half and maybe, you know, in garbage time in the fourth quarter when we're up by 42. That's right. maybe what we do. Load management is not apples to apples from sport to sport. There's different conversations and there are different reasons for it. So I think the takeaway from load management is like, it's 2019 and we think differently. Athletes think differently about their bodies and their careers because they don't want to play for 12 or 13 years. They might want to play for 17 to 20 years because they realize, wow, this is a good living. Yeah. If I can figure out how to stretch another year and another year and another year, that could be another 10 to 20 to 60 million bucks on the bank yeah. in theory, depending Absolutely. on your sport, and your position, all that stuff. So it's, it's going to be an ongoing conversation, but the reality that we face in a team setting, it's highly individualized. 
yes, it's implemented. And yes, we're very mindful of it because there's a double-edged sword of we got to protect these guys so we can do well in the long run. And the other edge of that sword is, yeah, we need to win. We need to put the very best team out there every time we can to be competitive to achieve our team goals. So it's a hard, it's a, it's a hard talk, but I'm guessing this is not the last we'll hear about it. No, I guarantee it won't. And, you know, it, it was such a good answer and it kind of feeds into my next question. And that is, you know, look, we're in 2019, like you alluded to, but I still feel like sports science is very much in its infancy, right? We're still kind of figuring things out and figuring out where this is all going. So I, I would love for you to be like my visionary here and give me some insight. Like, where do you see us going in the next five to 10 years? How is this going to continue to evolve? something that really excites me about sports science. There are a few fronts. The first aspect is technologies are starting to merge. And there are, some technolo- there are technologies out there where things are going to start to be combined. Things right now that we need two, three, or four different pieces of technology to spit out a bunch of different data on. In the next five to 10 years, I believe that you will see a merging of technologies, particularly like in the video realm, the video capture realm. That's only going to get more robust. Yep. And some of the stuff I've seen with you know, companies making pitches to myself and our staff, I can absolutely say with certainty, like technologies are merging and blending. And what's still going to remain, though, is the need to be able to capture that data, summarize it, and analyze it alongside of a lot of other data. So technologies are merging. And number two, I see the AMS platform area becoming more robust. Obviously, like we're a great example of that now with what we're doing with Kitten Labs, but I see it becoming more robust from the analysis standpoint. But that's a small one. The big thing, the big opportunity for science, in my opinion, based on some great conversations I've had over the last several years from people in the university setting here in the United States, are the continued creation of these athletic department positions of director of sports science or associate athletic director of health and performance science or sport and performance science. You're starting to see big schools figure it out of like, wait a minute, there's a real need and value for here. I see the direction of sports science being the model being dependent on what can be developed in this setting. And this is why I'm going to use a couple of examples. And these are people I've spoken with firsthand who've laid out visions of what they're doing in the university setting, kind of the big picture of where it could go. There needs to be more research in sport to better define what exactly is going on in sports in 2019, in 2020. What are the injury factors? We talk a lot about injury resilience and injury prevention, but Do we have great information about the exact types and mechanisms of injuries by sport, by age, by gender, by position, et cetera? There's a big need in that front, and I know that people are moving down that. But I'm going to take the example of like Penn State University. The senior athletic administration there had a great vision several years ago. Tandy Barber and Charmel Green, two two all-stars in the field, said we at Penn State need to be on the pioneer of how we take care of our athletes. And they decided to open up a health and performance science department and position where they use an individual, sports science background individual, to support the health and performance initiatives of athletes by helping unite and collaborate all the separate staffs of sports medicine, athletic medicine, strength and conditioning, sports nutrition, sports psychology with the sport coaches and the athletes themselves. But in addition to that, you are creating more efficiency and communication and then assessment and monitoring to help enhance long-term outcomes. Yep. Not just performing well here and now, but we have to start thinking about, and this is from an NCA standpoint, if there are changes in terms of what can be given to an athlete, and now maybe they won't go all the way down. The NCA says, 
all right, we're going to pay athletes. That probably, I'm guessing, won't happen. But one thing that's very reasonable and very being talked about more often is, okay, something we can offer students is better long-term care. Of you blew your knee out in college, and you know, ten years from now, it's causing issues. Maybe there there may be a time where the NCA or the schools will help take care of those and help offer more like physical therapy support in the long run. Yep. So then back up to the present setting, doing the best job here now to take care of the health and wellness and performance of the athlete not only helps them perform better, but in theory could help keep them healthier for the long run if they're not having those injuries or catastrophic injuries that cause long-term issues. Yep. These roles, and that's not necessarily, I don't want to put words in Penn State's mouth about why they did what they did. That was right. separate. But in theory, the role that they have there is helping create and enhance efficiency between staffs, communication between staffs. But then here's the second part. That position also, these large universities that have robust like kinesiology programs, robust exercise and sports science programs. There are academic programs there that have students that are ready and in need of internships. They have graduate students and PhD candidates who either need graduate assistantships in different areas or PhD candidates or graduates who need research outlets. These positions are now helping create bridges between athletic department and university partners. And by the way, it's not just exercise and sports science departments. You're seeing it in like biostatistics, statistics, courseworks, computer science and engineering. Different academic programs on campus through a position like that relating over to campus from the athletic department, the director of sports science goes, okay, we have this opportunity for research. We have that opportunity for research because we're already collecting all the data anyway. We can create a healthy relationship back to the university to get research done. Doing research, particularly in a conference like the Pac-12, like I'm out here on the West Coast and there's a bunch of, you know, obviously we got two Pac-12 schools in the state of Oregon, but the Pac-12 and other big conferences as well, and even the NCAA, they encourage their member institutions to do research and they can you know, apply for funding and grants to do research specifically on athletic populations. And part of the, the job of some of these directors to help facilitate the relationship between everything that's going on in the athletic department that focuses on athlete health and performance, helping enhance those things and then acting as the relationship to campus to help give legs to those ideas for research. That, in my opinion, is going to be the big call in the next five to 10 years where schools are going to start to figure out, like, there's bigger things at hand here. And for all of the conversation we have about, well, there's a schism between athletic departments and the universities, and it may as well just be two different institutions, and it's just crazy that, you know, there's all this money that goes on in college sports. Well, people are going to start to figure out that it's, it is beneficial to build a relationship as an entire organization to strengthen the bond between the two to not only help enhance what goes on in athletics, because that's not what it's about. From the sports science side, we are going to be able to get more research about athletic populations out there to better understand the, the sport and health and performance realm. But then when you think about it from the university standpoint, they can add value to the degrees that they are marketing for prospective students to come and get. You want real life work experience? Well, if you're if you're getting a bachelor's degree or a master's degree, we have 30 internships a year now or 50 internships a year now available in our athletic department where you get first, you know, real world work experience in you know, health and performance or sports science or whatever it is. I think in the next five to 10 years, more institutions are following. There are other models out there. Obviously, Oregon has a position. I've been in contact with Dr. Susan Sigward down at USC who... She is in charge of their master's program of sports science. It's kind of been you know, revamped and rebuilt. 
We had an intern from USC this past year who was stellar, did great, got hired promptly by, unfortunately, a rival MLS club. But (laughs) what they are doing is understanding the same thing about we need to give real-life learning examples in sports science. So we have this whole new field of technology and methodology and sports scientists and all these things. How are we preparing students for those? Which learning outcomes do we need to define to actually prepare them for the field? And then you know, from their standpoint, who do we partner with? Like, what sports technology partners do we need to see to better understand what it is we're measuring and assessing? How it makes sense in a team setting or a medical setting or a rehab setting? The next five to 10 years, in my opinion, of sports science, like, it has to come, at least in the United States, those relationships with athletic departments and universities, that could help be the catalyst, if you will, of the growth and fortification of sports science as we know it in the United States. I love it. I love it. Okay, my guy, big question time. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Matt Hawk one piece of advice about training and or life, what would it be? The thing I think many of us in this field think about is, I wish I would have learned to train smarter early on. So that, that exact mindset of first figured out what it is you need to do correctly, and then hard work is a bare minimum expectation for any program. Right? Hard work is the bare minimum expectation. But if you learn the smartest way to do things and then work your behind off in those areas, that's the one advice that I wish I could go back to like, you know, sixth grade me or whatever who was getting six hours of sleep a night just because I would be up in my in my bed listening to music or, you know, read you know, reading or whatever. And then in you know, high school it was, you know, you're up late on AOL instant messenger, you know, doing all those stupid things as high school kids do learning how to take better care of myself and be smarter during those years. And it's the same thing, it's the same advice that I give to young people entering the field. It's like, be smart with your time early on. And while you're being smart, work your behind off and do as much as you can. Yeah, I love it, man. Okay, last but not least, we got our lightning round. So fair, four fairly shortest questions, but your answer can be as short or as long as you'd like. All right. Number one, What's your career highlight so far as a coach or clinician? Career, career highlight so far is, like I said, I'm from Portland, Oregon. I get to work for the Portland Timbers, hanging a banner for a Western Conference championship in that stadium, which I've been going to since I was like you know, eight or nine years old. And I'll probably go into it for a very long time in the future. So 50 years from now, when I <laughs> hopefully are bringing my grandkids if I'm still around that time, I will be, I will yes. be, I'll forever be able to look up and see that banner and say, that was our squad. And hopefully we have, you know, more banners to hang between the Timbers and the Thorns as well. So definitely hanging a banner in the hometown stadium. I love it. I love it. Okay. Number two, I know everybody that comes on this show consumes information differently, but they're all voracious learners. So I'm interested, what kind of con ed are you into these days? Whether it's books, seminars, online courses, what are you into right now? Online courses, big time. We have the insane privilege of having staff in services in Con Ed where we can, because of our unique situation, we get to fly people in from all across the country and sometimes all across continents to come and do two two to three-day workshops. It's intensive, but at the same time, it's all hands-on learning. So between online seminars and those you know, staff in services, which are two and three days at a time. Those are my two go-tos. I love it. I love it. Okay. So number three, as a sports scientist, what is one thing you wished you'd known when you'd gotten started? Or maybe a little bit different way of phrasing this. What's one piece of advice you would like to give to young sports scientists who are just getting started? If you are choosing to go sports science, like straight out of the box, straight out of whatever undergrad, 
you need to spend some serious time in the areas that you will be working with. So you need to, it would behoove you, if you are an undergraduate, you need to see about getting an internship or even volunteering in a sports performance center at your school or doing some observational hours if that's allowed in athletic training. And you need to see day-to-day what it is that they're doing and have any understanding because there are a lot of really good experts and analysts who are totally absent of the process of health and performance. And they do brilliant work, but then it comes down to it and they just can't figure out, like, why aren't you doing this? I'm like, because that would never bleepity bleeping work <laughs> in the world setting. <laughs> right. Um, so young sports scientists, go get experience in the allied health and performance areas, strength and conditioning, athletic medicine, nutrition. And it really helps if, yeah, you do have a sport background or maybe you had some coaching experience. Not that that's like make or break, but those are the people you have to work with every day. And you want to be able to, you know, use that cliche, build those relationships. So understand them before you try and make them understand you. Oh, that's perfect. I love that. Okay. Last but not least, number four, what's next for you, my guy? And basically, any big plans for what's left of your not so long off season? really spending some time with each of the different coaching and management staffs, medical and performance staffs of Timbers, Thorns, G2, and the academy system we have to get them up and running with Kitman Labs and get those key foundational workflow elements in place so that we truly have a central hub so that on the backside, all the analysis that we're doing, uh, future analysis, and that we have in place for not just the medical and performance side, but the soccer side, like Getting those foundational workflows in place gives us a firmer ground to stand on when we are trying to paint the picture of what could be in the future for the rest of the staff. There's already a ton of excitement and interest from multiple staffs, but really taking the time to make sure that by the time preseason starts, I was literally getting text messages during this about from different <laughs> staff members about different reports. <laughs> by the time preseason starts, we want to be rocking and rolling and be standing on solid ground because you know it's going to be a great year across all fronts. So. The rest of the soft season is really devoted to that. And some downtime, obviously, going to get away with the misses, which is always there important. Go. Going to hopefully go down and see Joshua Tree National Park. Oh, that's, that's cool. That's a big thing for um, the off season. So there will be some work, but there will be a little bit of downtime as well. I love it, man. Well, Matt, you've been so great to chat with today. I feel like I took a ton away from this myself, and hopefully all my listeners did as well. So if they are interested in learning more, is there any way that they can learn more about you or connect with you? Here's the uh, shameless Twitter plug. You can find me on Twitter uh, at M-D-H-C-S-C-S. I'll probably be tweeting and retweeting when this comes out. And then you can actually find a LinkedIn profile. Actually, on on my Twitter profile, I actually really enjoy making genuine connections with folks out there and sharing ideas. You know, connecting with me on Twitter does not mean you're going to get a lot smarter, but... I try and and find the smartest people to follow. So maybe we'll share and have that in common that, hey, that person's a lot smarter than I am. I follow them too, Matt. That's good to know. <laughs> um, which is how I think about most everybody I follow is I, I go there to learn and engage and you know, I keep a lot of the silly stuff out. But it doesn't mean that I, I, don't, I don't enjoy a good gift for me every now and again. As well. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. Well, Matt, thanks again so much for coming on the show, man. This was really great. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate this opportunity and you know, love, love the cast, man. It's awesome. Thank you. All 
All right, my friend, that does it for this week's show with Matt. Sincerely hope you enjoyed it. I think this is one of those episodes where I really felt like I got a good understanding of what Matt does. He gave a great perspective on what sports science is and what sports scientists do on a day-to-day basis. And I don't know about you, but I just loved some of the thoughts that he had with regards to load management. It's such a hot-button topic in our industry these days. And so I hope that you took a few things away from the episode as well. If you did, you know, anything that you can do to help promote the show would be greatly appreciated, whether it's sharing it on social media, emailing it to a friend, anything that you can do to help spread the word would be greatly, greatly appreciated. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. I love and appreciate you. And we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.